Thanks for downloading Development Drums. My name is Owen Bader, and my guests today are Rakesh Rajani and Martin Tisney, and we're talking about open government and citizen accountability. Rakesh, Martin, welcome to Development Drums. Thank you. Thank you. Rakesh, let's start with you, um, and if I may, can I just ask you to explain about Twaweza, the organisation you lead? I think it would help listeners to understand what it's about. Twaweza works in East Africa, in Kenya, Uganda and Tanzania. And it's a kind of big experiment to, to test the idea that if you enable millions of citizens to get the kind of access, the access to information of the sort that many of us take for granted, uh, being able to get stuff on the internet, on the radio, on television, pick up a phone, talk to a friend, buy a book. If, if poor people can approximate that and have that sort of a access, and secondly also, and as importantly, can generate their own information and share it, would that empower them? Would that enable them to be able to do more things? Because they have access to more ideas, more data, more information, and be able to also tell their own stories to others so that it can have greater effect. So it's an experiment about information, increasing agency, leading to change. Okay, so we're going to explore all of the ideas in this chain of, of information and agency. But before we do that, let's find out from Martin. Uh, you work for the Media Network. Tell us about that. Thanks. Um, so I work for the Emidia Network, which is the, in West Coast parlance, philanthropic investment firm, um, started by Pierre Emidia, the founder of eBay, and his wife Pam. And there are a number of initiatives within ON. The one that I'm the director of policy for is called Government Transparency. And essentially, I mean, partly based on the, you know, the, the genesis of eBay, our focus is on how the web and mobile technologies can really increase citizen agency that Rakesh spoke about. And I think do two things that our field has been really bad at doing. Um, one of them is, is reaching scale, which Toyweza is very good at doing. But generally the field has been, been poor at doing. I think we're experts in um, having fantastic impact on one village in Rajasthan and you know, touching the lives of 300 people. But by and large, we haven't been so good at reaching scale. So that's one thing. Um, and then the other one is really reaching people directly. Broadly, our field is it's happy in the wonk box. It's happy in cities and it's happy reaching think tanks, but it hasn't been so successful up until now to really reach people and engage them in what's a pretty sort of, you know, wonky, what can be at least a pretty wonky, nerdy topic. Fantastic. So let's explore the idea of citizen agency and why it's important. Um, Rakesh, you were beginning to say something about a kind of parallel between uh, the lives of people in rich countries using Amazon and things and poor countries. But flesh out for us a bit, perhaps with the example of education, uh, the kind of work that Tuareza does and why you think that's important. So agency, I think I define it very simply. It's just people being able to do things, people being able to make a difference, people having more control over their lives. So take take education. Um, you know, schooling is everywhere now and it's grown. And one thing we've managed to do now is to get most children to primary schools. Uh, but there are a lot of problems beyond that. Um, teachers don't show up. If they show up, they're not teaching. Uh, we don't have enough books. The money that is increasing in national budgets isn't getting to schools. Uh, and most importantly, children are not learning. And when you talk to parents about it, first of all, many parents don't even know about these things. They're completely in the dark. 
And even when they get to know about them, there's a sense uh, that most people have that I can't do anything about this. Well, you know, I'm, a, I'm just an ordinary parent. So the idea of citizen agency is how can you turn that around? How can very ordinary people, not fancy you know, types, not the, just the activists, not just the wealthy folks, but how can very ordinary people be able to make a difference? And what are you doing um, to uh, enable that or to empower that? What, what kinds of things? What's the answer to how, how can ordinary people do this? Right. Well, I think there are many answers. So one of the things we're doing is an initiative called Uwezo. Uwezo is a Swahili word meaning capability or ability. And uh, what, that, what this initiative does is it's devised a very simple test that fits on one page uh, that tests basic literacy and numeracy. And uh, what we do is across the country in Tanzania and in Kenya and in Uganda, through hundreds of thousands of households, we test young children on the grade two level, class two level literacy and numeracy, and see what they're able to do. We test. Who, who tests? So it's, uh, we organize it as, as Uwezo Traweza, but uh, the work is done by thousands of volunteers across the country. Many of these are, are students who are in their gap year or just finished uh, high school, uh, secondary school. Uh, some of them are retired uh, civil servants. Others are NGO folks. Anyone who, who has a 10th grade education, like an O-level education, and wants to give three, four days of their time to help improve education in the country. It's, and it's really a wonderful energy to see, see among these people. And uh, you train them uh, with these basic tools. It only takes two days to train. And then on the third and fourth day, you actually do the assessment in households. And the advantage of doing it in people's homes is that you can actually get kids who are in school as well as those who are out of school. Uh, and you involve everybody in the home. So while you're testing the children, the parents are watching, the grandparents are watching, the neighbors are watching. And that begins a whole discussion. And, Go on. So the idea is that you're testing whether children are actually reaching the uh, levels of literacy in this case that or numeracy that you would expect them to be reaching for their age. And you're testing that in the household with some kind of expert, sufficiently expert people coming into the household and working with the children and the parents to test it. And then what happens? Well, the, 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 the exercise of doing the test itself is quite revealing. Because what happens is sometimes for the first time, you may have had your child in school for three, four, five, six years, and you just make the assumption that because I'm sending these children to school, they must be learning. So it can be quite a powerful moment uh, for many parents and others to suddenly realize that when, when the child does a test, the child can't read. We find, for instance, that uh, of the third graders who should all be able to read everything that we test them on, only one out of five can actually read to the level required. So four out of five children in third grade cannot read at the, at the required level. And this is in Tanzania? Or? This, is in, this is in Tanzania. In Kenya, they do slightly better. In Uganda, it's the same as Tanzania. So overall, uh, in, in when it comes to um, Kiswahili and arithmetic, you find four out of five children in third grade are not able to read at the level required. You might say, well, perhaps they catch up, there's a lag, and, and once they finish primary school, they will. But what we find is, even when they complete primary education, which depending on the country is 7th grade or 8th grade, uh, there are still significant numbers of children who can't read at the 2nd grade level. In Tanzania, for instance, children who complete primary schooling, which is 7 years of schooling, half of those children still cannot read English at the 2nd grade level. Now, I, so I want to take this back to the idea of citizen agency, right? Anybody can measure 
and we don't do it very often and we don't do it enough, but anybody can measure learning outcomes with things like um, literacy tests. But you're, you're not stopping there, are you? I mean, that's presumably the purpose of your exercise isn't to inform you or people in, in uh, Dar es Salaam that the education system isn't working. You're actually trying to empower communities and citizens to do something about it. So how does that work? What happens next? We're trying to do both. I mean, we are trying to inform. But in addition, the way in which this whole exercise is done is, first, it's done at a very large scale. We take all 130-plus districts of the country, and in each district we take 20 villages, and in each village we take 30 homes. So if you look at it, it's the largest survey, and that's deliberate because we want thousands and thousands of parents across the whole country to be involved in watching this. So the very act of doing it, involving volunteers and doing it in an open and transparent manner, brings in the whole community to look at this. And what that begins is, a, is, a, is an exercise of reflection and thinking. It, it, it breaks the assumption that schooling is the same as learning, which is a huge thing for many, many people. Um, it gives them data, it gives them information about their own child. And even though we only test in, in 20 households, what happens is because there are lots of neighbors and others watching and we leave the tools behind, you find that the, the lots of people in the community now start testing other children and the idea just spreads uh, across the country. So the first level of engagement is in the testing process itself and people start asking these questions and what can we do about it. We also leave behind some materials and ideas of what parents can do. For example, we have a poster that says here are six things that you can do. Um, then after the testing process is done and the data has been analyzed, we do a national report, but we don't just stop there. We do a large media communication engagement exercise. So the information is put on all kinds of materials that reach people on buses and pamphlets and magazines as inserts uh, on packaging of soap uh, and, and pens and so forth. And the whole idea is to create a debate across the country for all kinds of people to be asking the question, why are our children not learning? What will it take for children to learn? Uh, and what that does is not only does it kind of engender action across communities, but it puts pressure on the policymakers who have had this data, but for some reason have just chosen to ignore it. But now, because everyone's talking about it, it creates this bottom-up pressure that concentrates the minds of the politicians, the MPs, as well as the bureaucrats. So, Martin, this seems like a very different way of doing development than we've often done in the past, where in the past we've tracked aid projects from the top down, the donors are filling in log frames and theories of change. Um, do we have, you know, how, how broad is this movement towards bottom-up um, accountability as a way of driving change in, say, service delivery in developing countries? Is this something that you're seeing, you know, is, is Rakesh's example of Tuawesa a one-off, as you implied it was, at least in scale? Um, or are there lots of other examples that make you think this is a, uh, a growing movement? Yeah, I think it's 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 a tr- it's a good and tricky question. Um, I think there's definitely a growing movement towards openness in government. Um, I mean, just reeling back a little bit. So, ten years ago, you had a movement against corruption, right? Um, and then that movement against corruption, I think, gradually changed, and it's now a movement for transparency, for accountability, and for participation. 
Where the movement now stands is that you have a big focus, we still have a big focus on more supply-side reforms, where there's certainly a movement globally. So by supply-side reforms, you mean things like improving teacher training, the quality of schools and those kinds of no, things? No, I'm using it in, in, the, in the sense of sort of open government. So supply-side reforms where you're working with um, government to open up and to open information, so open data platforms, releasing data right, okay. in machine-readable formats, supply, etc. Okay, supply of information. The supply of information, right. right. So um, the Open Government Partnership, which we'll talk about um, in a second, out of, I think, 450 commitments off the top of my head, the most popular commitment of all, and this is across 58 countries now, is open data. So government's releasing more information. There's clearly a movement around that. When it comes to the demand, so, you know, um, working with and encouraging and helping citizens to engage with information and with the government... There are, then it's back to my earlier point, Um, there are episodic, you know, instances of this. There's great work famously done by MKSS um, in Rajasthan, in India, around social audits. There's work, you know, in East Timor, there's work in Afghanistan, a a number of different countries. But it's still too rare to see scale at the sort of scale that Rakesh is talking about, where you're engaging hundreds of thousands and potentially millions of people. Okay, so what do we know about, and, and perhaps Rakesh, you can tell us about um, how whether this is working. I mean, these are early days yet, and obviously these these social, political, institutional changes take time. But what's your sense in the education space? And we'll come to the water one in a second, which I think is a very interesting example. But in the education space, do you think that Oezo is really making a difference yet? Yes and no. I mean, I think uh, one thing that surprised us is how quickly the debate in the country, both in terms of what people are thinking, what media is covering, what the talk shows are talking about, as well as the policymakers are are now talking about change more quickly than we had imagined. I think uh, a combination of of that public pressure through the media and that sort of middle up or bottom up as well as uh, the donors and government feeling a sense of crisis and we need to do something. So that's moved faster. If you now look, you know, even five years ago, all the discussion was about enrollments. How do we increase enrollments? Now the core question is completely different. It's about how do we make sure that children learn, particularly how are they literate and numerate. So that's great. I think the part that's proven to be tougher than we had imagined is how can citizens themselves and communities begin to make a a difference to take actions. And what we realize is that, you know, some of us who are used to the idea that we can do things and, and, and have experienced that all our lives, kind of sometimes underestimate what it is to get communities to act. You know, if you've lived for 20, 30, 40 years with the idea that education is what happens in schools, is done by trained teachers, you have no role, particularly if you have lower levels of literacy, then it's you, you know just having one engagement over a weekend and even if it's followed up through stuff on radio and media isn't going to be enough so i think the the it's we're beginning to see some actions but i think that's going to take a longer haul and what we're also realizing is that we need to pay much more careful attention to questions of motivation questions around collective action questions around what will it get people to believe in and which people because I think the other thing we need to do is to differentiate while our aim is millions of citizens change is likely to begin with a few and we need to get better at targeting those few so we'll, we'll come to the case of Doraja the water uh, case which um, where there's a story to tell about what citizens will do but let's just differentiate two things that are going on one is that we want citizens to engage 
because that creates a political groundswell and puts pressure on elites, whether it's service providers with bits of government, politicians, media, because they realise that the public is caring about this, is talking about it, and they feel the need to respond. The other is the thought that citizens themselves might actually act. They might pull together a reading club for their kids after school, or they might, as parents, help their children more with their homework if they're in a position to do that, or get one of their neighbours or friends to do that. And as I understand it, you're saying that there's some evidence of the, begin- the first of those to begin to work, the kind of the, the, the feedback loop working back through the political economy of changing people's attitudes. But it's proven quite difficult to do some of the second, the, the idea of people actually taking action themselves to improve the way these, the big society idea in some ways of, of um, communities themselves doing these things that the, the state is not doing well enough. Is that a correct summary? Yeah, I think that's that's right. I mean, it's beginning to happen, but it takes longer and it take, it's harder work. The other thing is, you see, we have to also remember that some problems are best solved by governments, but others are for communities. You know, if, if the teacher in your community is not showing up or if she or he shows up, he's not doing a good job. I'm not sure whether making a big uh, protest to the central government or even the district government helps you much because that teacher is one of you, lives among you, and I think the best course of action is, is probably to look in the mirror and see what we can do ourselves. Martin. Thanks. I think um, a colleague of mine mentioned a um, really interesting sort of difference a couple of days ago to me, which is between sort of national impact and nationwide impact. And my sense is that we've had all too rare still, but still, in some countries we've had instances of national impact. So the case in India, where you have citizens mostly, but not only, in Rajasthan engaging social audits, so basically meaning, you know, um, going out, volunteering, and looking at the difference between how much was spent on infrastructure projects and how much was originally in the bill of quantities in the contract, etc. Now that culminated in the, you know, most groundbreaking, arguably most effective Right to Information Act we have out there, the Indian Right to Information Act in 2005. So we have these quite amazing examples of national impact. What we have still, again, far too little of is nationwide impact, which is your point, right? The sort of ideal of the big society, which is if what we want to do, which is what I think we want to do, is, is change fundamentally the nation, the, the relation, sorry, between citizens and governments, ultimately we need nationwide impact. So we need localised impact and many, many pockets of local impact where people are engaging differently in their schools, in, you know, with their healthcare providers, etc., at scale. You're listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Bader, from the Centre for Global Development in Europe. My guests today are Rakesh Rajani from Twaweza in Tanzania and Martin Tisney from the Amidia Network. And we're talking about openness and accountability in development. If you like development drums, you should be aware that other podcasts are available. The Centre for Global Development does a weekly Global Prosperity Wonkcast, which looks more succinctly at an issue on which we're working. And The Guardian also has a monthly podcast on development. I'm interested in the analogy with what happens in our own societies, where, um, on the whole, on the way the World Development Report some years ago uh, described this, you, you have these long feedback loops where 
um, governments in the United Kingdom do or don't provide a good public health system, for example, through the NHS. And if people in their communities get fed up with long waiting lists or dirty hospitals or whatever, they are more likely to vote for a government, a national level government, that that promises an, an agenda, a plan to do something about that. And the way change happens in many of our public services is through these long feedback loops, through through national level policy changes. Um, we don't on the whole, say, my word, our, you know, our hospital isn't working as well as it should. We must get together a, a gang of people to go and clean it or to go and you know, provide late-night portering services there. Um, so are, is what you're... On the other hand, we do have some local... Like, for example, you're an example of teachers. We do have parent-teachers associations, which is the mechanism by which we put pressure on schools to deal with particular poor-performing teachers. To what extent is what you're talking about a citizen agency in, say, Tanzania or Uganda or Kenya um, different from the kinds of feedback mechanisms that work well in rich countries? Uh, And to what extent are you suggesting something different from, you know, I'm just curious to know whether you have a, a model of public service management and delivery that's fundamentally different from what happens in the wealthy societies at the moment. Um, so uh, it's it's a little difficult for me to respond because I'm not exactly sure what happens in, in the wealthy societies like in the UK. Um, uh, you see, what we're trying to do is is in part seeing what is already working in some other spheres and asking, well, could this work with our public services? Because if you look across East Africa, you find that people take all kinds of actions to solve problems, individually and collectively. Uh, and that's, in fact, how we get by. The, the state of services that our governments provide are very rudimentary compared to what you get in the richer countries. So if people can organize, for instance, around how they transport their goods to market, or how, if people can organize in terms of getting innovations around solar energy and so on, we're saying, could we use those forms of informal organizing and those forms of information networks that are working on this side and see if we can transpose them into the to the levels of public service. Now, some of that, and I think we, we're kind of agnostic and open-ended about what kinds of action you take. Sometimes it may be that a group of people can say, let's help you out here because what you know, we, we're seeing that you guys are really working hard, but you stretch, perhaps we'll give a hand. But at other times, it can take a very different form. It can be that we know that the head teacher is corrupt or is, is lazy, and, you know, we're not going to let this go on. So it's about getting involved in how we do that. And even there, we're quite agnostic about do you do it through formal means, i.e. show up at your school committee meeting, or do it through informal means, such as go talk to the priest to put pressure on the head teacher. The, the idea is, you know, use the best means that you can figure out, that you can conjure up to make the difference you want. Sorry, you mind if I jump in on your question? Um, I think there's two things. One of them is that most of the most most of some of the most exciting innovations or most of the exciting innovations in this field come from the global south. So it's not an agenda that's being, you know, it's not a great cosy Western agenda that's then being imposed on others. And that's the big lesson beyond, but exemplified by the Open Government Partnership. So we were talking about social audits. We were talking about the way in which the Indian Rights Information Act came into being, which is, you know, fundamentally different from others. And we can talk about that if it's relevant. Participatory budgeting in Brazil. Um, I was just talking 
story to, uh, to a high-ranking official in the UK government a few days ago, and he was saying that at, um, at the Department of International Development, he was saying, well, I went to Brazil and, you know, talking about our aid transparency guarantee. Mm-hmm. And the Brazilian said, well, this is great. You know, we're excited that you're doing this. We started doing it 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, that's one point. The innovations come from the South. And the other one is that in, historically, in terms of, you know, our little movement around open government, we tried the long feedback loop and it failed. I mean, 10 years ago, a lot of, you know, when a particular region, when um, funders, donors were pouring millions of dollars of assistance on the Balkans, on Central Eastern Europe and Southeastern Europe, all the funds for anti-corruption went to one or two things, either really long-term sort of national anti-corruption commissions or awareness-raising campaigns for the people. So effectively what happened is you pour millions in awareness-raising campaigns, you have big posters outside of Sarajevo that say, don't bribe, mustn't bribe, it's a really bad thing, there's bad impacts. Then people are frustrated and they try and use you know, what they have, which is elections, and ultimately the election system in this countries don't always work and they get more frustrated and public trust in government declines, which is the worst of of any scenarios you want. So it's partly, I think there's a couple of different things happening. One of them is innovations in the South, and the other one is, look, we tried this and it didn't work. At this point, you know, we're innovating in exciting ways in these countries. Excellent. Now, I've got a question from that was asked on our Facebook group. So um, just a note to the listeners, if you want to ask questions for future guests on Development Drums, go to our Facebook group and you'll see who the guests are coming up and ask a question. Here's one uh, put by Amanda Beatty, and she, she says, for Rakesh, what reactions and changes have you seen as a result of testing basic literacy and numeracy and published results? Have ministries, local governments, parents and or citizens taken notice or action? What resistance challenges have you faced from trying to turn learning results into action? So what has the impact of this been on these people? Initially, there was a lot of resistance and, and people tried to pick all kinds of holes with the methodology because they didn't like the results. Uh, you know, the prior to ways of starting, the kind of official narrative is we've done wonderful things. In fact, they were getting accolades. They won a big prize for MDGs. And that was a narrative that was convenient for everyone, for the government and the donors. And and Ueso data punctured that. So at the beginning, there was a lot of resistance. Um, but as because we do this every year and because the work is done so carefully and so robustly and because we make the entire methodology and all the data completely open, after a while it became increasingly difficult for the government uh, to, to continue to resist this data. What has changed now is without kind of formally acknowledging WESO, uh, all the kind of key targets and indicators in the new plans for education that the government are making have changed. So, for example, there's a new plan that they have just prepared for, for the next five years. If you look at the primary goal now, it says improve learning by increasing literacy and numeracy. Um, there's something in the works right now called the um, uh, uh, Compact for Reform or something of that sort. And if you look at it, you can clearly see the, the, the WESO results uh, or the WESO impact right in there. Um, so I think my, my sense is now the sh- that shift has, has happened completely at the, at the policy level. Across the country, what is happening is a lot of the community groups, non-governmental organizations, the media groups are also changing what they are talking about, the questions they're asking. So the nature of the debate, I think, has completely shifted. We're also beginning to see this in Parliament now. Um, the, the stage, as I said earlier, that is that is that has moved much more slowly, uh, but on the other hand, it shouldn't surprise us because this takes time, is the action at the community level, and that's what we're zeroing on right now. Let's focus 
uh, now on Daraja and the the water example because that's really interesting because um, it hasn't worked by and large. Um, I should I should declare an interest here, which is that I'm a member of the advisory committee of Toeza, which is partly how I know a bit about uh, these projects. Tell us what we know about what has and hasn't worked in that case, and what the lesson is. So Daraja is in its concept is a lovely idea. Uh, it's just, you know if, uh, here's the basic context. Um, most people in in a place like Tanzania don't get their water in their taps at home. They get them through public water points. And over the last couple of decades, thousands of the, these have been put across the country by the government and many donors. The problem is that about uh, half of these water points don't work. They don't function. And um, and uh, we thought, what can, you know, and the fact is, even though people know about this, there is no action taken, nothing changes. So we thought why don't we create to get our partners Daraja thought why don't they create a system whereby people using their mobile phones because most people have mobile phones simply report whether that water point is functioning or not and that information would be sent to the water people concerned and then it would go it would escalate up to higher and higher levels and the idea was that if I'm the local water engineer and I don't do what I'm supposed to do well, you know, it'll be, it'll be passed on to my superior, so they'll create a kind of incentive for me to do the right thing. And then, after a month or so, the idea was that all this data would also be made public and particularly sent to the media organizations to create another level of pressure, another level of incentive for you to do the right thing. So this, so just to be clear, so people are going to send in a text message saying, my water point isn't working. And then uh, you were going to aggregate that and have a, like a map or something showing what was working, what wasn't working, some league tables and those kinds of things. And it didn't work. Right. And it, and it well, it didn't work. Uh, we were, you know, first we were finding some of the messages didn't make sense. So what, what our partner did and together with us is we spent a lot of time perfecting the system. We thought the technology must be easier uh, and it still didn't work. We thought, well, what about the costs? We made sure that the SMS was free even though the cost of sending SMS is pretty low, we thought, let's make it completely free in case very poor rural women can't do this. It still didn't work. Then we thought it might be that uh, people didn't have enough information about this. So there's a huge kind of awareness campaign in the three districts where this was piloted. So that, you know, I think in many ways over the top awareness, you know, every day a radio program for half an hour, it still didn't work. When we did a careful evaluation of this, what we learned is there are several reasons but the key reason, we had made a key assumption that was wrong, which was that once given the opportunity, people would use this system. But when we asked people, they said, why should I bother? It won't make dif any difference anyway. I've been asked many times in the past for what I think about water points and all kinds of other things. I tell people about it. I tell NGOs. I tell governments. Um, I tell researchers. Nothing happens. So I don't believe in this system, and I just, you know, I'm not going to be bothered. Because the project had failed to, to handle that very core human political economy issue right there, all the technology in the world would not have solved it. And what we've, what we've learned from this process is that some very core basic things we should have done right at the beginning on iterating on how this works and some core research was not done right. And let's be honest about it, partly because we were mesmerized by the opportunity that technology offers. You know, we were, and in some ways let the geeks take over and we forgot some very one-on-one human problems. Let's just pause to appreciate an NGO which does a careful evaluation of a project, 
learns a lesson, identifies and is public about failure and learning lessons from that. That's something that is all too rare in our business. So, you know, just having this conversation is terrific in itself. But And I just on. wanted to point out that Ben Taylor, who, who used to run the organization until recently, has written some really great blogs on this. If you go to daraja.org, you'll read some wonderful blogs he's written on this. Yeah, no, I think exactly. But to your point, Owen, with an emphasis on the fact that they're public, they're understandable, they're written in blog formats, anyone could read them, and I think it's fantastic. Two quick points on that example. One of them is, in in, a number of years working in this really exciting, growing field, there's one big takeaway that I have, is that it roughly divides into two camps. There's the camp that works on the sort of, you know, demand side of information, citizens, change, change now, you know, you know, caricaturing. And then the other camp, which is now the supply side, you work with the government, you build the systems, you build the reforms. And I really think we need to work on both sides. And that's what's striking. So you're very crudely caricaturing, you know, theory of change. You start with um, sort of standard setting. So here the standard's pretty clear. You know, the water point works, it doesn't work, it should work. You know, you monitor it, citizens monitor it. But then there's a there's moment of answerability, responsiveness. You want the state to answer, to be to be responsive, and then it doesn't. And then it moves on to sort of sanction, sanction or reward mechanisms. And all too often what doesn't happen is, I think, working on both sides, working both with, you know, the SMS, exciting campaign, getting citizens and scale, but also doing the more bureaucratic work, working with government ident- and identifying, doing two things. One of them, identifying reformers in government who want to respond. How do they respond? How do we work with them? What are the incentives for the reformers within government to engage with this? And then just, you know, the more sort of public service management bureaucracy of how they could respond. And another brief point is, based on the example that I've been chucking around with MKSS in Rajasthan, um, it goes back in some ways, I think, to the national and nationwide change, which is, you know, who are the decision makers in this particular case, which I'm familiar with to a degree, but not that familiar with, you know, where where are the decision makers? Is it a national level decision or is it a very localised decision? I think the beauty of the, uh, the MKSS example in Rajasthan is very local. And the reason it worked is purely through the power of shame. <clears throat> they, they got information around how much was spent um, on you know how much should have been spent on building a road and how much eventually was spent and then in a beautiful you know Indian fashion there's a, a big party called Ajan Sinai where they make a lot of noise and they read out very publicly in these small villages or clusters of villages the results and in some instances not all but enough instances the responsible officials were present were publicly shamed and in some cases actually you know gave the money back in the very publicly to the community to get over this shame. So there's an interesting, again, sort of you know, local element where the decision lies. I'm going to move on in a second to um, the broader questions of transparency and so on. But I just want to just to close off on the Daraja example, the water points example, where, um, as I'm hearing you describe the problem, Rakesh, it's not that bits of government were refusing to respond to data that was provided to them. The problem was that we were stuck in a low equilibrium in which the community didn't believe that there would be action from government, probably with some justice, and so weren't generating the demand for change that the government might or might not be in a position to respond to, or some some agency might be in in a position to respond to. And that seems to me to be quite a difficult problem to solve. If the community has low expectations of government responsiveness... Um, they're unlikely to invest in the time, 
the energy, perhaps the the you know social and political difficulties of pressing for cha- you know na- the naming and shaming you described, Martin. You know, people need some guts to stand up and name and shame public officials. People who might well be the person who decides if they're going to get the next permit for their market stall or something. So how do you, how do you, uh, I mean, if the problem is that people have this low expectation, how do you break into that vicious circle of a low equilibrium? I think it's, I think it's very, very hard work. But what we're doing now increasingly is, is focusing on stories of change. See, part of the idea here is, is, is about imagination and about aspiration. It's getting people to say, okay, yes, this is hard. Yes, the likelihood of getting answerability is low. Um, yes, there's fear, you know, you may take action and get in trouble, but but this is our life and these are our children and this is, you know, and, and are we just going to accept it or are we going to try to do something now? What's very important is what that something is, how you assess your own risk that ha- that is very personal and very local and it's very important that Tuaweza or nobody else kind of dictate that or require that. Um, so what what we try to do by telling these stories of change and, and real stories of change is to get people to get inspired. You know, this idea that, hey, if, if they could do it in the, in the community next door, why can't we do it? If they could do it in health, why can't we do it in education? And usually what we're finding is it, it doesn't, it's not like the whole community uprises. It, it takes a few people, the kind of odd ones, the outliers, who start trying to do something. And look, often it fails. You know, you might stand up and shout out and you might get beaten on the head and that might be the end of it. So I think we also want to be very honest that uh, just simply taking action doesn't guarantee results. And this is the long haul, uh, you know, and, and, and part of telling the stories, telling the stories of people such as those who fought apartheid in South Africa or those who fought for independence in East Africa or the women's rights movement in our own countries that show this is this is a long slog. And sometimes you, you're lucky and you get results quickly and sometimes it takes much longer and and that's part of i think the honesty of storytelling that we also need to be part of you're listening to development drums with me owen bada and my guests today are martin tisney from the media network and rakesh rajani from tuaweza We've been talking about citizen agency and how change happens from below. I'd like, if I can, to switch to the question of the role of transparency and open government in this, because um, part of the story, is, as Martin was saying earlier, is, is the connection between what happens at a grassroots level and the extent to which governments are more open. And in the example you gave, Rakesh, early on about, uh, about education, it wasn't the government publishing hitherto secret results of education tests that made the difference and has been making a difference. It was you actually putting in place a system to go around and empower citizens themselves to collect and report that, that information. Um, and yet often when we talk about these questions of bottom-up accountability, we, we connect that to the question of, of open government and open data and so on. So I guess, Martin, the, the, this question is for you, really. To what extent is, is, is the transparency agenda important for the kinds of citizen agency that Rakesh and Tuaweza and, and people like him are working on? Do, what, do we have good examples of where transparency has really helped drive this kind of process? I think there's a couple of things. I think the, uh, the open government movement is more than just is more than just about transparency. 
So it's about transparency, it's about participation, responsiveness, and it's about accountability. Um, so, you know, going back to the to the early example, briefly, working within government um, to open government up to the possibility of citizen input in policy making, you know, is a nice example of, of a reform that touches on both sides. So, for example, in the Philippines right now, I know the number is exactly right, but I think 2.6 million people engaged in bottom-up budgeting um, in an amazing exercise organised by um, Secretary Butch Abad, who, who deserved to be recognised for this work, the Secretary um, for the Department of Budget Management in the Philippines. So, you know, <clears throat> a government that's conscious that it doesn't have all the answers, that wants to open up and that wants to engage with citizens to hear their views, in this case around participatory budgeting, I think is a nice example. I mean, there are other examples, and in some ways the obvious answer to your question is to say, well, you know, you need the information out there, it's foundational, you know, you have to have governments that are open, information belongs to the people, which is the FOI argument, which of course is right, the open data argument, which is, you know, <clears throat> if the if the data is machine readable, if it's in open formats, if people can reuse it in different ways, we will find patterns and we'll be able to match with it. I think all that's right. And there's an argument which is simply, you know, it's the necessary but not sufficient argument. In order for these to work, it's a massive amplifier if governments are open and transparent with the information that they have. But what I want to emphasize in, in my answer is that, you know, the movement itself, if there is or if we can have a movement, is around transparency, it's around engagement, participation, it's around responsiveness of government, and ultimately it's also around, obviously around accountability as a result. And, and it's that cocktail that we need to reinvent the relation between citizens and government. Rakesh, in your mind, how much is transparency a part of, of, what, your, of what your movement is about, what you're trying to do? Are you relying on governments to be more transparent and open or is this something that you think that you can take forward without that well so i first i think transparency is hugely important i think it is the underlying condition with which makes many other things possible uh, not automatically there are no guarantees but without without transparency it's much harder to do anything it's harder to organize when you don't know what's going on so i think transparency is crucial now uh, i would make two points one is that you want government transparency or government releasing what it holds uh, on behalf of the public is a key part of it. But it's not the only part. A lot of it is about generating new information and in, in, in other ways and kind of interesting ways. And things like mobile phone technologies now make that possible. But the other key point that I think uh, we often overlook is that for most people to get engaged, that data needs to be very local. Uh, if, 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 I'm a, if I'm somebody who lives in an urban neighborhood and you know, even if you're in London and you're in, in a London neighborhood and you hear that you know the mayor has a budget of 20 million pounds, well, what does that mean for you? You know, how do you translate that at your level in terms of your your children in your school or your street? Uh, so the level of disaggregation is very important. And then finally, I think another key aspect that Tuareza tries to focus on is information makes sense in comparison. You know, if if somebody tells you you got uh, 500 pounds per child for your school. Well, how do you make sense of it? Is that a lot? Is that not enough? Uh, but if somebody told you you got 500 this year, but you got 1,000 last year, ah, then you say, how come I'm getting only half of what I got? Or if you got 500 and the community next door got 800, then you say, Hi, hold on, how come I'm getting my... So it's, it's, it's giving pe- people information, A, that's disaggregated at the lowest level, and two, in comparison with previous years or other communities or other things. And that's what helps people to kind of make sense of those numbers. 
Martin, do we have good examples of where transparency and access to information, uh, you, you gave examples where there had been participatory budgeting and so on, but what does that amount to in terms of improvements of people's lives? What, how did that participatory budgeting lead to better service? Is there any examples where we know things actually got better as a result of people being more engaged, say, in budgeting or in service delivery or so on? Or is that still to come? Is the, is the kind of final, final impact still to be demonstrated? Or do we already have good examples of this? I think we've got, first of all, the, the honest answer to that question is that our evidence base is weak. I mean, you know, the excuse to that is partly our field is relatively young, but still, our evidence base is still weak. We've got decent um, examples. We've got decent evidence when it comes to sort of short-term outcomes. So, you know, in aggregate, X amount of money was saved thanks to, you know, very localised community monitoring. But in terms of the impact of transparency and accountability reforms and activities on, you know, health outcomes in the long term, uh, we don't have very much. Um, you will smile, Owen, because, you know, I've mentioned this before, you know where I'm going. You know, the one, the Uganda example, um, the famous Uganda case, which dates back a little bit now. Tell the case because not everyone will have heard it. Right. Um, it's my test if I can remember the case well enough. But essentially what the Uganda t- um, ca- case is, it's a, it's a randomised controlled trial that was done in a number of villages in Uganda a few years back, which essentially um, was at a local level with healthcare facilities and um, citizens were given information as to the services that they should be provided with. But crucially, um, the healthcare providers knew that the citizens had that information um, and were engaged in delivering the service. So there was an element of participation and transparency. And to, to cut the long story short, um, in, the, in the treatment cases, the ratio of infant mortality went down by a third. So for kids under five, so a third of children under five didn't die who in other cases would have. And that's our big sort of shining hope. And there are relatively few of these examples. But what, what we need and what a number of groups like you know, Toweza and International Budget Partnership and others are doing are you know, quantitative but also qualitative case studies that are longitudinal, so that run alongside studies for alongside projects for a number of years. So just, just for, to clarify for listeners, you can look this up. Svensson and Bjorkman wrote the, the paper about this, the study of the Ugandan health case. And in the cases where um, uh, clinics had monitoring, um, randomly chosen group of clinics, they had no extra funding, no extra anything else, just monitoring by communities, you had these big improvements, as Martin's saying, in uh, infant mortality, but also in things like vaccination and, and so on. So this, so we, we have an example there where um, community monitoring uh, plainly makes a, a big difference to an actual outcome. The, you know, reductions in infant mortality is, is pretty much as, an outcome, as good an outcome measure as you can get. Uh, Martin, you're looking, you're furrowing your brow. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm furrowing my brow just because I, I, I want to make this point on, on the record, um, which is a number of listeners will be saying, aha, yes, there's the Uganda study, but there's also the Benolkin study in Indonesia, which shows the contrary, which is that community monitoring and citizens in did roads. nothing. Right. Yeah. Um, my understanding of, of the case in Uganda is that the key piece is that citizens were not only given the information, right, but they were trained and there were capacity building support for them to engage. So I think partly we may be going to some of the incentives which Rakesh talks about. You know, training, you know, 
you not only have the information, but this is possible. You know, you have the power to change this situation, which is very different from the uh, from the Indonesian. Okay, so I'm going to suggest a different difference between the Ben Olkin studies, the Indonesia studies, and the Uganda health clinics. And the Ben Olkin studies were about road building in Indonesia, and in those cases, he he did a randomised control trial where um, you either had nothing, the control group. Or you had auditing top down the the traditional top down way of tackling corruption. Uh, you sent you actually in this case they threatened to set in, send in the auditors, and or you had uh, the bottom up monitoring by communities. And the the top down auditing worked, and the bottom up uh, community monitoring didn't. My explanation for that is that if somebody told me. You know they're going to build a road along uh, near your neighbourhood, and it's going to cost ten million dollars. And can you keep an eye on it and see if it's done properly? Is that I would be in no position to do that. Right? I wouldn't know whether I had that amount of. Ra- this this comes to Rakesh's earlier point about the granularity of the data. That that it needs to be information that people can connect to. Um, so asking somebody to monitor whether the the road is made with the right materials or whether it's really ten million dollars worth of road or not seems to me to be a big stretch. Whereas asking people, is your clinic working? Are the doctors good? Is it open? Is it dirty? Seems to me a perfectly reasonable question that people can probably uh, answer. So it may be because in the case of Uganda, they were training community organizations. Or it may just be that it depends what question you ask and what, what it is you're asking people to monitor, that people, some people can monitor clinics better than they can monitor road building. I, yeah, I think that sounds very. I mean, I think that sounds very right. I think partly the emphasis on roads. I mean, I'm not getting into the head of the of the scientists who did the study. May come from from Indian cases where a lot of the focus is on infrastructure monitoring. But what's interesting in those cases is that it actually technically wasn't the villagers who were doing the monitoring. They were trained volunteers who did the monitoring, then submitted the results right. to the villagers. Right. So I think that sounds intuitively right. Um, I do think as well that one of the differences is that in the Indonesia study, um, which we should find the right reference for, that my understanding again is that the citizens were simply given the information, right? right. And like, you know, make of this what you will. The other point in the Ind- Indonesia study that's always puzzled me a little bit is that, if I remember correctly, the chances of having um, being audited, you know, um, officially were 90% which is, you know, as a test, I guess, makes sense. But in practical, you know, in, in realistic terms, is highly, highly unlikely. Mm, very interesting. So um, I think the conclusion of that is that we need more evidence, both about whether this works and, and I think more, more precisely in, in what circumstances it works and what, what kinds of problem does it help address and what are the conditions for that and what are the ingredients that you need uh, that go alongside transparency to enable communities to uh, hold their governments to account. I'd like to move on to the Open Government Partnership, if we may, which is um, uh, both of you have been involved with uh, since its inception. Uh, You can go on on the internet and see Rakesh making a speech at the first meeting of the Open Government Partnership. Um, uh, Martin, why don't you tell us what this partnership is? Um, Okay, so the Open Government Partnership is... It's quite wonderful sort of concoction of 58 different countries um, that have come together to, in very practical terms, implement and well, develop and implement open government reforms at the national level. So what Open Government Partnership is, in a nutshell, it's, it's a vehicle, it's a hook, it's a lever for civil society groups, for reformers both within and outside of government, 
um, to say, you know, I have an idea for an open government reform in my country. It's a great idea. I think we think you should do it. And it provides them with the hook that they didn't have beforehand. So that's one thing. The second thing is that it's a very unique, um, you know, it's, it's a unique initiative in the global context. It's governed by a steering committee. The steering committee has 18 seats. Half of those seats are occupied by civil society groups from around the world. And the other half are governments. And out of those governments, you have BRICS, you have developing countries, you have you know, developed countries. It's a really, it's a very exciting mix that's you know, reflective of the world that we live in. Um, so that's the second point. And then I think the third point is that it's, you know, OGP occupies this beautiful sort of squishy area, which is that our open government field is, is sort of governed by this alphabet soup of um, international initiatives. So IIT, the International Aid Transparency Initiative, EITI, META on medicines, cost on the construction sector, etc. And But for this to be a movement, which is you know certainly what, what myself, Rakesh and others are driving to, we need to be able to tie these together. We need to be able to have you know the thread that binds them and really tells the story, and that's what we're not good enough at doing. An open government partnership bring these together. We can talk about it's relevant in a second how it's relating to other international initiatives, but it really brings them together, and it's a locus to showcase um, at the international level some very basic truth. You know the point that innovations come from everywhere, and especially they come from the global south, has now been made very strongly at the highest levels of government. By OGP, and just the last point that I should have started with is that OGP has given us um, inroads into the highest levels, into head of state level, to the highest levels of government that our movement simply didn't have before. So President Obama, you know, started it um, by a speech he gave um, at the General Assembly in September 2010, um, and then from then on, we had you know, head of state engagement in Brazil, in South Africa, in Indonesia, in a number of different countries, which has really galvanized, and I think you know, um, it's a fantastically exciting development in the past two years. Rakesh, you've been involved in this from the beginning. What, what difference do you think it's going to make? How does it seem to you as a, as a civil society activist from a developing country? What, what's good about the Open Government Partnership? Well, I'm, I'm excited about it for all the reasons that, that Martin mentioned. Let me mention two others. One is that, you, you know, governments, particularly perhaps the, the middle and the lower end uh, in terms of wealth, uh, governments sometimes work in mysterious ways. You might find that a country like mine, Tanzania, is willing to do a reform because it's part of an association where others are doing it. It thinks it's cool to be part of it. And there are these pressures uh, that, you know, you you might find that our head of state meets another head of state and says, oh, I also want to be part of this. So I think what we've seen in is certainly in the short life of OGP is that sort of peer encouragement, that sort of peer pressure. If they do it, we better kind of have something to show as well. And so in that sense, I think the OGP creates an impetus of some kind of rising to the top um, and, 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 and also sharing ideas um, just by convening uh, these countries once a year and being able to tell stories of what others are doing, you can have countries that are beginning to share ideas that would not have happened otherwise. There's one other element about the OGP that I think is really important, which is the independent review mechanism. Because look, it's all well and nice for countries to get together and say, look, we're going to make these wonderful commitments. But what matters is the rubber hitting the road and a referee there saying, you know, on this you're doing well or on this it's all bollocks. And the independent review mechanism that is key part of OGP creates an, an independent group of uh, experts who set the rules of the game, who then employ local experts to assess each country, 
on a periodic basis and all this is made very open uh, and I think that's crucial to to kind of holding our feet to the fire and making sure that all this excitement is, is kept real. So this is a coalition of willing countries who have come together and signed up to the commitments. Um, it was described in The Economist um, a, a few months ago as a kind of new international division, not between left and right or communist and capitalist, but between open and closed. This was... This was um, you know the British government and the American government's kind of new, uh, new Cold War uh, between those who are broadly on one side of the fence and those who are broadly on the other. Is that something that you recognise in this? Um, and or was the Economist? You're both shaking your heads. Which one of you wants to um, tell what? Tell us why the Economist was wrong on this. <laughs> I'm not sure the Economist necessarily is wrong. I I tend to disagree, which is. I don't think that the story of OGP is open versus closed at all. Um, the governments, first of all, the governments sign up to their own commitments. There is no, OGP is not a standard setting body. There's no blueprint that governments sign up to, first point. Second one is um, there's a relatively low eligibility threshold for governments worldwide to be part of OGP. Um, there's roughly, I think, 75 or 76 governments worldwide that qualify um, according to four different criteria, you know, freedom of information, participation in budgets, um, etc. And the impetus in the earlier stages was that, you know, it doesn't matter where you start. What matters is where you go. It's the race to the top notion. So not, not everyone has to be Denmark tomorrow, you know. And, and in the, uh, a publication that we did in the early days um, called Opening Government, which you can find on the website of the Transparency Accountability Initiatives, we spend a lot of time thinking about, right, if you take any given issue in the field, be it, you know, big issues like freedom of information or, you know, some more technical issues, more sectoral issues like aid transparency, you know, what are entry-level reforms that governments can do? What are mid-level reforms? And then what are, you know, most or more ambitious reforms? And I think, you know, that's that's really one of the big excitements of OGP. And there are all sorts of different governments, and governments can be wonderful at one thing and less good at another. South Africa's on the steering committee are number one of the Open Budget Index, and perhaps two slightly less well in other parts of the open government field. You know, Azerbaijan is part of the OGP, does well in some areas, does much less well in others. So there's a real, you know, there's a diversity and there's a complexity within an OGP that reflects, you know, the world that we live in and, and reflects the, the open government field writ large. I think that's why, but that's why Rakesh is right to emphasise the independent review mechanism, which is that the flip side of what I've described is to say, oh, well, that's all very nice, but, um, you know, it's just a talking shop, governments patting themselves on the back for being in the club and they're not doing very much. And that's why, you know, it's not a, the important point is it's not a peer review mechanism where governments are at the table right and review themselves as peers there's an independent review mechanism where in a sense we are all peers right civil society the private sector trade unions the government and others you know will be asked what their assessment is of how well the country did or not so it's very young you know i mean 2010 but- but it is an interesting new form of multilateral cooperation, right? I mean, there there really has been nothing like this, it seems to me. Uh, so uh, what's your assessment so far of, you know, the early days? But have we have we seen the fruits of that? Is, is this something that we should be um, uh, celebrating? Or, you know, is it what, what's your sense of it in terms of where it's... And where do you think it'll go next? But let's start with where we've got to so far. 
Well, I think we should celebrate and we should be very wary and skeptical at the same time. There have been some victories. The, the freedom of information law in Brazil, I don't think, would have come about without the OGP. Uh, there's all kinds of other projects, initiatives, from open data to greater participation to paying attention to how service delivery can be more participatory that countries are beginning to do. So if you want to look for successes, yes, there's a kind of you know, a dozen or so, two dozen successes that you can see. And I also think it is meaningful when a country signals to its people that on these, you know, through its plan that we're going to do these things, it gives a hook for civil society and others to focus. Uh, but uh, will OGP be this great transformative thing which changes the nature of government uh, fundamentally? Uh, I think, you know, time will tell. It's way too early. Uh, my own assessment is that uh, it can go either way. And if, you know, if anything, I think there's a less than 50-50 chance it'll succeed because its its core ambition is really, really, you know, it's really big. It's about changing the fundamental way in which government works. Uh, if you look at the declaration, that's what it's, what, that's what the vision is about. Uh, but there's lots of vested interests, inertia being another problem, um, and, 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 and leadership. I think both on the part of governments and then on the part of civil society will take an enormous amount of leadership to come through. Martin, the UK is about to take over the chair of the OGP um, in next year. What, what, are you, what would you like to see the UK doing? What, what, what happens next? Where does this go in the coming year under the UK's leadership? Thanks. Technically, the UK is, is already chair and, okay. and uh, have been lead chair since September. So it's still, it's still very new and will be chair until, until this next September 2013. I think there's a number of ways that we could have done to the OGP differently a couple of years ago. The way we did it and it happened to be done, is to have a lot of countries you know, sign up very fast. Now 58. Argentina, as of last week, is the 58th country. I think the main story of OGP right now is to implement the commitments and deliver the independent reporting mechanism, the independent review mechanism, to really assess these and then take stock. Um, the, the the nature of OGP is always very fast, right? You know, you launch and then you know countries and you want you know momentum. We wanted countries to sign up. I think at this point, taking stock is is what's important. But if I can make a quick point on uh, on sort of multi multilateral um, cooperation and OGP, I think where we've had so it comes back to the distinction between national to a degree and nationwide. We're making earlier. OGP has got to had some successes on the national level reforms, much less on nationwide, and that'll take a lot of time. Um, the question is, Is will we be given that time? Will OGP be given the time to have that aggregate impact at the nationwide level? At the national level, where it's been successful is this notion of hook that I was mentioning. There's four quick ways it's been doing this. One of them is where you have, so again, OGP is not a standard setting mechanism, but it's like, you know, it's like a, a machine that can turbocharge standards. You should throw the standards in it. So existing standards like International Aid Transparency Initiative, Extractors Industry Transparency Initiative, fantastic. You know, your country is part of OGP. Yes, you should sign up to EITI. The United States signed up to EITI because of open government partnership. And I should say Britain still hasn't signed up to EITI. And, Brit and Britain still hasn't. And hopefully may as part of, you know, its OGP commitments. Um, creation of new standards, the Global Initiative for Fiscal Transparency and Open Data Charter that we're working on with others. There's, you know, there's really excitement and enthusiasm in the field that's been generated by OGP. You know, the degree to which countries part of OGP can get together and caucus. What we're hoping is that um, OGP countries will engage with a high-level panel on the rethink of the Millennium Development Goals to see how transparency, accountability and participation fits throughout. And I think the last point is when we look at this you know, aggregate of these 450 you know, plus commitments, 
what are ultimately this is about norms it's about changing global norms you know what are the norms that are bubbling up from below participatory budgeting citizens budgets in the philippines obviously in brazil and other countries you know will this bubble up thanks to ogp so i think what we need is we need an independent review mechanism that really works that can you know be tough that can show that this is serious that can help us achieve that can help us have impact and that can also buy us time because the only way that will really make that real change it's on a 10 15 20 year landscape another question from one of our facebook listeners uh, alan hudson who uh, you both know um it w- what one action would demonstrate through real time simple action by people all over the world making connections and sharing information the power of open what one action would demonstrate the power of open through simple action by people all over the world rakesh i think it's a great question um um you know one one could be with our schools you know i i bet you that most of us certainly all your listeners live within 5 kilometers of a school uh we may have our own kids or our own brothers and sisters going to those schools and yet we don't get engaged so you know, imagine if we all decide that we're going to engage with that school whether it's following the money that gets there or seeing whether our kids are learning whether helping the teacher or prodding the teacher to do the right thing reading um you know taking time to to help manage the school um i think if if we all if we could all get involved in our local school we could transform not only education and our children's learning but we could begin to transform a way in which we think about government you're listening to development drums with me owen barda from the center for global development in europe my guests today are rakesh rajani and Martin Tisney. You can subscribe to Development Drums free of charge on iTunes. You can also go to the website developmentdrums.org where you can play individual episodes or download them to your MP3 player. So one of the interesting things about this discussion about open government and citizen agency is that it appeals in part to a view of development which is about how societies change from within I and mean, it's interesting that we've talked not at all today about donors and the role of donors and the role of aid we've talked about how citizens themselves change can change their relationship with their government and their service providers i'm interested in how this connects to what it is that the international development partnership can and can't do david cameron talks about a golden thread of institutions open societies open economies that bring about development and he certainly sees he's bringing to um his role in the in the G8 high level panel that's looking at the future of the millennium development goals an attitude which is um that open and accountable societies are a fundamental driver of the development process is that view that david cameron is expressing something that you would associate yourself with do you think that's part of the story all of the story is this is what you're are you living david cameron's dream when you talk about the open government partnership martin my living david cameron's <laughs> dream um I mean i think it's right i think you know ultimately it's the uh, it's it's the third stage we're at post washington consensus washington consensus no it doesn't work the focus is on governance and institutions and institutions matter and now the pendulum swinging further saying you know demand side citizens engagement open societies open economies and i think it's right but i think as mentioned earlier about sort of 45 minutes ago when we started you know it's both about 
demand, engagement of citizens, open societies, open economies, as well as engaging with institutions to make them more, more responsive. So I think, you know, yes, and we mustn't also forget institutional reform. The analysis that um, David Cameron has, I think, is uh, partly about what it is that we as donors should do. Um, either of you, um, I guess especially Rakesh, what, I mean, are there things that you, you would like the Western powers to be doing uh, or not doing that would help you and people like you in the developing world? to run your campaigns more successfully. To what, to what extent is this just an internal, organic, bottom-up process that we should um, uh, you know, walk in solidarity with you, but there's not much that we can directly do? Or to, to what extent are there things that you would like to see donors doing differently? So, yes, I mean, you know, change is going to come from ourselves, from within the countries, and we need to get the proportions right. That You know, that's that's where the focus needs to be, and that's what's going to be. Now, A, it can play a small, uh, in some ways, in some countries, a slightly bigger, but even in those countries, overall, a marginal role. And I think A, it can be done badly or can be done well. Um, so, you know, my, my sense is that we've learned some lessons. One is that you, you focus on a few key things that are outcomes and you get out of the way from micromanaging. Another key aspect I, I on, on results is right. I believe the focus on results is right, but I think there are bad ways of thinking about results and good ways. And then one of the good ways is you need to give time and need to understand that you don't, you don't get the quick results. I, I worry a little bit about some of the diffid uh, talk now that it seems to be very short-minded and kind of kind of drains the politics out of how change happens um, and and I think the, the the other big thing is that we have to remember that if we're interested in in, in reducing poverty or ending poverty um, a key part of it is is things like trade uh, we still haven't made enough uh, progress on the trade agenda um, there's there's also a, a huge issue that I think we're not willing to touch, which we should address, is the issue of migration. I think there's plenty of uh, evidence. Michael Clemens's work, for example, at CGD, that shows that, uh, you know, more liberal, more open immigration policies. So, you know, one of the questions I would want to ask David Cameron if, if he was here is that if, you know, how, how is open immigration, open movement of people, part of the golden thread? Martin. Thanks. So a slightly narrow answer around open government. I think there's a lot that funders can do. You know, on one side, you know, supporting, um, encouraging governments to open up. And as Rakesh mentioned, you know, transparency information is the fuel of much of what we do. Data is the fuel as well. Supporting open data initiatives, you know, open information, freedom of information campaigns. But the other part is, you know, not all, but many. Much of this work is still donor-supported, and the philanthropic communities in the countries we're talking about, writ large, are still relatively weak. Um, and I think, you know, to speak for the perspective of the media network that I work for, pretty much all the funding that we give is core funding to organisations to support those organisations and to support entrepreneurs within those groups. So, you know, funding innovation, supporting entrepreneurs, letting them, you know, a fairly giving them a fairly wide berth to figure out what they need to do for their countries um, is, I think, what funders should do. And a small, a small plug on that, as an example, we're about to, tomorrow, the 13th of November, soft launch a, a fairly big fund, a $45 million fund called Making All Voices Count, which is a partnership between ON, Media Network, um, DFID, USAID, and, and um, CEDA, yeah, the Swedish International Development Agency which is exactly around that, trying to nurture and create innovation ecosystems 
in the open government field in about 12 different countries. That's very needed. Martin Tisney and Rakesh Rajani, thank you so much for coming on Development Drums. Thank, thank you. you. I think. You've been listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Bader, and my guests today have been Martin Tisney and Rakesh Rajani, and the producer is Anna Scott. 